0: An excellent woman is something that we marvel at. We marvel at. So, in each way, each of us in some way has benefited from a godly woman. And, and we're going to discover from our text today, from the Bible, something that, that, that false religions of the world, what secular societies of the world, including the United States, we're going to discover something that they don't do. Scripture and biblical Christianity, elevates women. It elevates women. You know, don't be fooled into, into accepting the modern feminist movement. Uh, don't, don't think that that has somehow liberated women. It has not. What we have seen in Hollywood, professional sports, modeling, even in politics, it hasn't liberated women. It has placed them in the bondage of being objectified, sexualized, harassed, that's what it has done. It's resulted in abuse. Because secular and feminist doctrine, they, they've essentially instructed women in our culture that they need to become a man. That's what they've done. And, and honestly, most women have never been more miserable than they are today in our modern society. And, and that's not to say that extremist religion and even some people in the name of Christianity haven't also done bad things to women. But their misery, that type of misery, it doesn't originate from the Bible. That's not where it comes from. It doesn't originate from doctrines that arise out of sound Bible teaching. The Bible doesn't oppress women. Instead, the Bible liberates women so that they may behave and function in the way that God has created them to function from the very beginning. So over the next two weeks, we're going to discuss a woman's role in church, woman's role in the family, and today we're going to observe verses eight through ten, which show what make a woman spiritually attractive. It will cause all of us to appreciate a biblical womanhood. A wife and mother is immensely valuable to a family immensely valuable to a family, and is encouraged by Scripture to excel in just a myriad of capacities. Multitude of ways they're encouraged by Scripture to excel and achieve. With that said, there are also a couple limitations that the Bible puts on women. Just as the Bible puts a couple limitations on men. Just as man is prevented from taking the role of a woman, a woman shall not attempt to seize the role that God has given to men. That'll be our subject next week in verses 11 to 15. But first, there, there are a couple of verses that we need to cover. You may notice last week that I didn't finish out verse 7 in First Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, in preaching the gospel, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, he says, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You know, In the last few weeks, we've discussed the role of an apostle at great length. I really don't want to spend any more time doing that right now, talking about the role of apostle. Let's just note a couple things here. As we find in many of Paul's letters, Paul's authority as an apostle, many of his epistles we see, it's constantly challenged. Constantly challenged. He's always looked, finding resistance. So why does he insert this statement here when he writes to Timothy. I would, I would expect he is again strengthening Timothy as he did in verse, or chapter 1, Excuse me, saying, in, in essence, they challenge me as an apostle and the teacher of God's word. Anticipate that they're going to challenge you as, as a pastor in teaching God's word. Just expect it. It's going to happen. So consequently, Paul told Timothy back in chapter 1, verse 18, just fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Moving on then to verse 8. Paul says... Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Addressing men and women separately in this section, Paul speaks first to the men. And and having just called in our previous passage for prayers of all kinds, prayers, entreaties, thanksgivings, calling for all kinds of prayers, he now indicates that here in the worship setting, the leadership of prayer is placed on the hands of men. In every place, it says, that means every location, every town, every home where there's a church, where the congregation comes together, where Christians congregate for corporate worship, prayer is to be initiated and led by the men. This absolutely doesn't mean that women aren't permitted to pray in prayer meetings. It doesn't say that. They certainly are. But when we gather together, as we come into corporate worship, Men are called to to call the congregation to prayer. Why? That is a question we will have answered next week. But prayer, in in calling people to prayer in corporate leadership, it is a leadership role. And we'll look at that next week. And we find in verse 8 that that men who lead the congregation in prayer are to lift up what? Holy hands. Holy hands. Holy hands, And as I've stated in the past, this verse, it isn't prescribing a specific posture of worship. It's not a preferred posture. In fact, in Scripture we observe many postures of prayer. We find bended knees. We find people laying down prostrate in the dirt. We, we find people praying while bowed down. In fact, when we look at Luke chapter 18, when we see the Pharisee and the tax collector who, uh, who go to the temple to pray, we find that God is even perfectly satisfied with the tax collector standing erect with his eyes down and beating his chest in prayer, right? So God's perfectly satisfied with that. So whether we stand or whether we sit when we read scripture or when we pray, it, it's not as important our physical posture as the posture of our heart. We are to pray with reverence and in awe for God, with humility. And the holy hands, it means separated. The word holy means set apart. The hands are set apart to God. And that would indicate hands that are unstained by the world, unpolluted by sin. So to lift holy hands or unstained hands means that we, when we bow our heads and when we raise our hands together to pray or lift them to God, they are to be unstained by sin. This is obviously symbolic, right? It's symbolic. It's not only our hands. It's any physical member of our body that is to not be stained. Even our mind, even our hearts are to be unpolluted. So this is, this is suggesting moral purity when we come to pray. And In fact, when the prophet Isaiah, you look at Isaiah chapter 6, when he drew into the throne room of God, and, and, and when he was given this glimpse of the holiness of God, and we remember the, the seraphs saying, Holy, 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 in this magnificent picture of the throne room of God, uh, what member of his body and, and that of his nation is Isaiah most ashamed of? His lips. His lips, he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of, of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. There was plenty of idolatry. There was plenty of adultery and other things going on there. Yet, James says, with, with our tongue we bless the Lord our Father, and with it we curse men. These things ought not to be so. So the tongue and the lips are a direct reflection of the heart. So our prayer must be offered with an attitude uh, uh, and, and a purity of speech. And we see that in verse 8. We're instructed to pray without wrath or doubting. This command to pray without wrath indicates some may have been using prayer as a weapon. Could have been an opportunity to express personal dissatisfaction. Have you ever encountered that where you're praying with, with people and it seems like they're not praying to you, or to God, it seems like they're praying to you. They're expressing what's in their heart, and they want it to be heard by you, not by God. I believe Paul's reminding us when we pray and we lift our hands to the Lord, it is for praying to Him. We're to have prayer, uh, purity in speech. Paul also says not to pray while doubting. This, would, this might indicate a reluctance to pray, because we're not sure that God will hear, or that He even has the ability to answer. We're not to be reluctant to pray. We're not to pray with doubting. We know He hears us. We know He'll answer according to His will. So we shouldn't be reluctant to pray at all like these. Prayer uh, with doubting or with wrath. Paul says, don't pray like these. And and some of the prayers that are offered by men, unfortunately, are probably causing a distraction. But men weren't the only ones distracting from worship. Worship. They weren't the only ones that were arriving stained by the world. Some women were arriving at worship for the purpose of drawing attention, not to Christ, but to themselves. And they, they would wear extravagant or possibly provocative adornment and dress. So Paul provides a statement in verse 9. He says, Likewise. Notice the word likewise. So Paul is now turning his attention, his correction, from men to women. He says, likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. So one thing to notice here is what Paul is not saying. Paul doesn't say that women shouldn't adorn themselves at all. That's not what he's saying. He says, actually, that women should adorn themselves, but properly. And the Greek term here for adorn, it's kosmeo. Cosmetics, right? We get that word cosmetics from it. It's where we get that English word. And the basic meaning is to bring honor by putting oneself in proper order. Putting yourself together. It means to, to appear with dignified. Come dignified to church. So, Paul's first command to women is a positive one, actually. Put yourself together before coming to church. A woman's not supposed to come to church looking like one of these people we see early morning at the Circle Can Sunday. And they walk in with pajamas or possibly what were used as pajamas, and their hair's all over this direction and that direction. And you're like, I don't know where that person came from or where they've been. Everything's all makeshift, and and, and it seems they have no sense before going out in public. That's not dignified and put together. We don't come to church like that. The other thing that we have to note as a woman is, is not to unduly mask her natural beauty. Christian women, we don't wear burkas. We don't wear, as I mentioned before, those pilgrim dresses with the hats that go all the way around. We don't do that. Do, do we honestly think that, that visitors or the lost world would find that winsome? No. It's just weird. It's just weird. From the beginning, this means from before the fall, women were formed by God, He was formed by God, beautiful in appearance. Scripture makes no apology for a woman's beauty. It brings glory to our Creator. Adam responded, you'll remember, with excitement, with jubilation, when God brought Eve to him. And he's saying, now this is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh, flesh and she will be called woman. The va- vernacular, that's wow! Really. Adam continued, he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and will be joined to his wife, they'll become one flesh. For what reason? He hadn't gotten time to get to know her yet. She looked real good. He was attracted to her. And a man's attracted, attraction to a woman's beauty existed before the fall. It wasn't a result of sin. We've distorted it because of sin. But before the fall, God said everything was good. A woman's beauty is good. And, and God commanded procreation, and a woman's beauty definitely facilitated that. It was good. So those of us, you know, we, we may think it's more spiritual to come dressed like Minnie Pearl and to throw some dirt in our hair, you know, to look real humble. That, that's not what is commanded by this passage. And we look at Nahor. If you remember, that was the servant of Abraham. And Nahor went to his father's land to find an adequate uh, bride for uh, Isaac. And that was Rebekah. You remember what said about Rebekah? She was very beautiful. Brought Rebekah back to Isaac. And we know that Abraham feared for his life because his wife Sarai was so attractive. People could tell. And, and then we see Jacob pursued Rachel. He worked for Laban for how long for Rachel? Seven years wasn't enough. Fourteen. She had to be attractive. And, and we see here with, with the, all the patriarchs, just to clarify, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And, the, and then we find probably, we don't know, I don't think Scripture describes anywhere, but with Joseph, when he was in Egypt, and he became ruler over all in Egypt, his wife was probably pretty good looking too. That from all the patriarchs, they make no, Scripture makes no apology for a woman's beauty. And we only need to read Song of Solomon to see that. A woman is beautiful. But what we do see in Scripture, what we do find, especially in Proverbs 31, is that a woman's value is not measured by her natural beauty. In fact, natural beauty in Proverbs 31 isn't even mentioned on all its criteria. And we'll get to that in a moment. But you can be a beautiful woman while still not seeking to draw special attention to yourself during the worship service. You don't have to hide your beauty, but as a woman, you do need to refrain from dressing in any way that would be a distraction or that would be provocative. So so the woman is to adorn herself. She's to put herself together, yet modestly and discreetly. For a woman who would dress provocatively, that would be to cause men to lust, distract from Christ. That would be to her shame. That's probably the reason that the King James on this calls it shamefacedness. It would be too shame to draw attention away from Christ and to herself. A woman must use sound judgment while putting herself together. In an effort for more clarity, Paul says, that would mean, again in verse 9, not wearing braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly garments. These are all things in that day that only women of opulence could afford. Even the braided hair, they would braid gold into it. Only the wealthy could afford it. It wasn't common by any means. And uh, the universal terms here that we see, adorn, modesty, costly, these are all indicators to us that this rule, it's culturally generated. Each culture has their own generation of these rules. So when a woman adorns herself, it's to be to the modest side of the cultural norm. Modest side of the cultural norm. There's nothing especially unspiritual about dressing nice. In fact, Scripture would tell us to dress nice. There's nothing especially spiritual about dressing not nice. Nothing spiritual about that. We wouldn't come to to church in rags. Verse 9 would imply we don't dress down to come to church. So turn again to Proverbs 31. Flip over there, please. By the way, this also is... Describing corporate worship, there's nothing in First Timothy 2 here that we're looking at as we turn back over to Proverbs 31 that would suggest a woman uh, on her wedding day can't wear a nice dress. It doesn't say that. It's not talking about a special occasion or something that is on occasion. But turn uh, again with, to Proverbs 31. And though the woman is not assigned value or dignity according to her natural beauty, it's not even mentioned as we said, she is praised for her general appearance. She makes her family dress respectably. Proverbs 31, verse 20. She stretches out her hands to the distaff. For young folks here, just think sewing machine, all right? And her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. For all her household, they're clothed with scarlet. They're clothed good. She makes coverings for herself. her clothing is fine linen and purple. So through her diligent labor, she provides clothing. Who does she provide it to first? The poor and the needy, right? She gives it to the poor and the needy. Then she gives it for her household. And then finally for herself. And, and these dyes, they're scarlet, they're purple, that she uses for her family... Um, I believe they refer to the extra special touches that she puts on her family's clothes. A little color in here, a little color in there to accent the clothing that she makes specially for her family. Why is she dressed in fine linen? It's because her own hands made it. She worked for it, she earned it. Linen. It's made from flax. It is a very laborious fabric to make. It's very difficult. It's time-consuming. But it's a much superior fabric when it comes to coolness and moisture absorption. So it is a preferred fabric. How do we know that she dresses in style? She wears style within the cultural norm. How do we know that? Look at verse forty or 24. The work of her hands... It sells in the marketplace. The tradesmen want her stuff because it's popular. It's in style. It looks good. And the reason, verse 25 says, for that, she smiles at the future. Her stuff is selling. She's an ingenious woman. Her product is culturally in demand. People want it. So in summary, the excellent woman, when she's attending church, she doesn't dress provocatively. She doesn't wear styles that draw undue attention to herself. In fact, the men, they don't even really notice. We we don't get that fashion thing. We, We just don't. We don't get it. We don't understand. But the other women, the women that visit, the women come from the outside, the lost women, when they come into the church, they look at her and they say to themselves, you know that woman over there? She's, she isn't drawing attention to herself. She, I don't know what it is. She, she looks put together, but not everyone is watching her. Whatever it is, she looks really good. She looks right. She looks put in place. She looks fashionable. Other women are drawn to that. It's respectable. And it's a, and it's a product of her good works. They appreciate her. But her adornment is not merely external. Peter tells the women, your adornment is not to be merely external, with gold and and costly clothes and other things. Let it be in the hidden person of the heart, Peter says, with dignity, with quietness. Adorn yourself with that. And in verse 10, back in 1 Timothy 2, we see here she adorns herself, how? By means of good works. As is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. A woman committed to godliness will adorn herself with good works. What are the good works? To be honest, I searched and searched. I found very little treatment on this topic. Even MacArthur himself just said this. He goes, uh, a woman making a claim to godliness, it must be clothed with righteous behavior. That's basically all he said. Didn't go into any more detail there. Very basic, doesn't give us much light. And we automatically, myself included, we, we come to this immediate conclusion in this connection that the good works are, are combined with spiritual acts of kindness. And that would be right. That, that would be accurate. But when we look later on in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're going to look a lot more at good works. And these would include things like showing hospitality to strangers, washing the saints' feet, we will find, assisting those who are in distress, being generous with money. We're going to see these described, and I think those accurately reflect what we're talking about here. But I also find in the terminology in this verse 10, there's a noticeable difference than what we see in the later chapters. Here a woman finds her dormant and makes her claim to godliness... My translation says, by means of good works. Most English translations, they they translate this with good works. Like good works just accompany it, comes along with it. But the literal Greek better translates this adorned through her good works. She is adorned spiritually by the means of, it is achieved by the good works. How is that possible? Well, hang with me here. This, this term works here. It's a, it's a Greek ergon. We get what word out of that for work? Ergonomics. It's being efficient. It means uh, implies efficiency in the workplace. And, and my Greek-English lexicon says of this word that ergon has the same meaning as the English word work. Both denote action or active zeal in contrast to idleness. They both... Are used for useful activity in contrast to useless busyness. And it's regarded for any kind of active work. It's used for agriculture, agricultural economy, also for the pursuit of various trades, for all kinds of occupations, for commercial undertakings, of trade, shipping and fishing, and of the pursuit of art, sculpture and poetry. It's said, historically, this word may also be applied to working in various materials like metal, wood, stone, and clay. This excellent woman, she's an industrious woman. You read through Proverbs 31, she's buying fields. She's planting a vineyard. She's sewing clothes. She's doing all kinds of good stuff. She's using her gifts as God has gifted her. And, and Proverbs 1 ta- 31 talks a lot of commerce. And her diligence, it manifests itself in a variety of ways for a woman from art to offshore fishing. Really. She, you can do it all. And the reason that she employs her skills are because first she has a concern for the poor. She reaches her hands out to the needy. Then an excellent woman, she wants to take care of her family. She wants something extra for her family. She provides for them well. And then also, the product of her hands, whatever it is, return to her in the fine linens and what she wears. Whatever occupation that may be, it's used to benefit her household. Not to take from her household. That's a key here. Proverbs 31.27 says, She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children, they rise up and bless her Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. So, whatever she ventures to do, we know it's not at the expense of her household, it's not at the expense of her children. The absentee mother, it's not in harmony with God's word, the one that's never around. And we'll speak more towards those responsibilities in the household next week in our passage and gender roles in the household. But for today, from reading Proverbs 21 and looking at 1 Timothy 2, the Bible, Old Testament and New, Biblical Christianity, it's not oppressive to women. It's not oppressive to women. Women can do all kinds of things. Someday we're even going to let them drive a car. No, Rita's an excellent driver. And though there are those who have claimed to be Christian, who have oppressed women in the name of religion, we realize that. Nonetheless, you don't find that in the Bible. Not in the name of religion. The Bible elevates women. God and Scripture do place a couple limitations on women. Just as there is a couple limitations on the male gender. And number one in those limitations, the first one is that a woman's pursuits must not isolate her or remove her from caring for her family. And, and men, really speaking to us here, you and I have to labor to make sure that that does not happen. Men aren't couch potatoes. We don't just sit around our, our, our house and let our wife go out while we sit at home. That doesn't work. This can be harder on men than it is on the women. 1 Timothy 5:8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. Men provide for their home. Scripture commands men to lead the home. And you can't lead the home if you're not providing for the home. It's our responsibility to absorb the stress of being the financial provider. It's part of the curse. It's inherited from the fall. It's going to be thorns and thistles, remember? Nonetheless, men don't cower from it. We man up to it. And we do what we need to do. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 Christian men don't lead an undisciplined, unruly life where we then become a financial burden to others. That includes our wives. Instead, Paul provides himself an example, as an example in that passage stating that him and his group that had arrived in Thessalonica, we labored in hardship day and night. I realize sometimes it's really not easy. And I do realize that there will be seasons in life where where that seems like it's impossible. That just appears impossible for a family. I have a a wonderful brother-in-law and obviously married to my sister. And he, hardworking, strong as an ox, worked a large portion of his life, providing well for the family, and way too early in life, he's stricken with MS. He can't work. Bad things happen. Situations happen that you don't have control of. Men lose jobs. It happens. But our responsibility and our goal as the man is to get back up and go do what we can to lead. We go out, we step up to be the provider. And, and if we don't feel that urge at all, to not step up and lead and take the burden off our wives, of, if that inherent urge isn't in here, something's wrong. Something is wrong. Scripture would say that now we're out of harmony with Scripture if that's occurring. But well, we might say to ourselves, you know, if I just had a Proverbs 31 woman, you know, she's going out and doing all this good stuff, I could sit at home in the recliner, eat Cheetos, If I spill some of those orange crumbs, she can come along with a vacuum afterwards. I love Cheetos. She can just come behind me. No, that's not so. Look at Proverbs 31.11 again. It says that the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Gain. Interesting word here. This Hebrew term for gain, in verse 11, is pronounced shalal. And shalal is the most commonly used word in the Old Testament for spoils of war. It's booty. It's military plunder that he's talking about here. The the point that the writer Lemuel is making suggests that her gain, it's excess to the household. It's over and above. It's it's plunder. And, And in verse 18, she senses that her gain is good. That's because it's the cream. It's the extra. Her income comes in above and beyond because the dad's working. Uh, She isn't forced to compromise her family for it, for the household. Uh, Because if that were so, then she'd be out of harmony with Scripture. This is the cream. It's the extra. And there may be seasons of life, very honestly, where the circumstances with the children and other things, the, the load for the mother is so heavy, this can't happen. There might not be any cream. You look at this, this is verse 28. It says, her children rise up and bless her. It's because of all her, her effort and her labor. And this word children here, it's, in Hebrew, it's not indicating infant. In fact, it means just a child of any age, including teenagers. So a Hebrew wouldn't read Proverbs 31 and look at that and expect that this woman here, the industrious woman, is doing all this with a toddler under each arm. Wouldn't indicate that. There may be a season where you're not able to do things, mothers, wives. That's fine. You're, you're taking care of your family as a first priority. In Proverbs 31, children, we learn these teenagers and youngsters that are all here today to listen, they've already been taught. Verse 26, Look, they're being taught to carry out their responsibilities. You know, when I was growing up, we called them chores. That's right. And I was, on, I was the youngest of six on a family farm. And by the time I had reached ten, I was already out in the field helping dad and in in doing stuff. I wasn't sitting at home eating the Cheetos on the couch, making a mess for mom. I was working. And and I'm not going fill, to fill you with a fairy tale that, you know, I went to school uphill six miles both directions. I, I, I'm not going to do that today. But the Scripture says, for the excellent mom, verse, verse 28, the children are supposed to rise up and bless her. Right? You bless her for all that she's done for you. Or else, according to Ephesians chapter 6, says to obey and honor your father and mother, or else, children, you're out of harmony with Scripture. There's no idleness in Scripture. And we'll discover that as we study chapter 5. But but to just kind of wrap together this point here before we do communion, our culture is telling women that they have to be working full-time, that they have to be raising a household of children that they have to look good all the time, they have to be excellent in everything they do, and that they're supposed to do that while the husband takes naps and goes on holiday. No! And while the kids are playing, lying around playing wee all day long, till they're 26 years old and finally leave home. No! The mother is not to carry all of that alone, even if she is a Proverbs 31 woman. We're to share in the burden. But feminist culture, it's made the woman a slave. She has to do everything. She has to go out and work full time, she has to take care of the kids, she needs to change the diapers, she needs to call to get the car fixed. A woman has, has been overburdened in this culture. We don't find that in scripture. We don't find that in scripture. And and then, by the way, when the home falls apart, when someone gets ill or a job's lost or the husband leaves, we blame the woman. I don't know how we've gotten to this. I just got to say, the woman is not the source of our family's problems. The woman is the solution to our family's problems. She's the one who provides the gain. Children can do appropriate age-appropriate age chores. Wash the dishes, mow the lawn, mow the neighbor's lawn. Put the clothes in the washer. Read the instructions. Don't ruin the washer. you get me in trouble. Men have to lead. Men have to lead. We're going to talk about that next week. A couple ways we do that. One is by example. If we want our wives to bring in the cream to make life easier, to make our clothes nice so we can get a new set of spinners for our rims. If we want that good stuff, we can wash some dishes. We can clean off the counters. I don't know where it says in Scripture we can't do that stuff. We can help. And the kids will learn from our example. So listen close, folks, dads especially. Learn to clean up, teach your kids how to do it, and then assign it to them. (laughs) The other thing we need to do, we need to remember good old-fashioned discipline. Really, we do. For the sake of your excellent wife, Men, we we have to step up for this. We don't have to make the wife do this. Uh, Making sure the children obey. Proverbs 13, 24. If you spare the rod, you will hate what that child becomes. He'll grow up into something you hate. But he who loves his child, Scripture says, disciplines them diligently. So a dad has to lead the discipline. And you've got to start really young so somebody doesn't get hurt. You don't want to wait till that kid's big enough where he's got a better right hook than you. Don't let that happen. Don't come to me later. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. If we want our wife to be rich in good works, we're going to have to cultivate an environment man for her to be able to do that. We need to make the family environment, the social environment, pal- uh, fit where she can do that where she can be all that she can be if we read proverbs 31 i know there's a lot of excellent wives here a lot of them my wife's an excellent wife i know pastor weiler's wife is an excellent wife there's a whole lot of excellent wives here and i look around but if we conclude that our wife we read proverbs 31 we look and we're like my wife doesn't look anything like that it's probably your fault probably the man's fault we need to take our responsibility. Well, I'm going to call the men up now to celebrate communion. For a final note, if your wife is rich with good works, Proverbs thirty-one thirty-one, give her the product of her hands and let her be praised for it. Hard-working women, I've found, are very generous women. They like to give you stuff. Um, she'll stretch her hand out to the needy. She'll clothe her family. Let her also wear fine linen once in a while. That's what scripture would say. Let her have the work of her hands. Give her the product of her hands. And she'll bless you.